It was on January the 27th, 1967. Apollo 1 had been rolled out to the launch pad. They were doing just a routine test to try to get ready to launch it sooner or later. But it was a tough day. They were having so many problems communicating and things were just not working right. And it turned into a long day and people were frustrated. You remember we had first started with the Mercury program that was shooting one man into space at a time. And when that was successful, we went to Gemini shooting two men into space at a time. And then we went to the Apollo program with now three men at a time. And that was what we were going to go with to the moon. It was an incredibly powerful rocket. There were so many systems, and it was a struggle. Gus Grissom, one of the original seven astronauts, was the first astronaut to be asked to fly three times in Mercury, in Gemini, and now he was the commander of Apollo 1. Along with him was Ed White and Roger Chaffee. They'd been sitting up there for hours. In order to simulate being out in space... They had to pump pure oxygen into this capsule, and they pumped it in up over 20 PSI. It was pure oxygen that was in there for hours. And as they were lying there on their back, suddenly there was a frayed wire that gave a spark. And it was that spark that set off this oxygen, and a fire swept through the capsule in just moments. In less than 60 seconds, all three astronauts were dead. It was a horrible tragedy. So many mistakes had been made. It was a colossal failure. And when all of that happened, everybody began to ask the question, what do we do now? What do we do now? Do we decide that we really shouldn't go to the moon? With this kind of a failure, these kind of mistakes, maybe we should back away from that goal of landing a man on the moon before the end of the decade. What should we do now? As you can imagine, it led to all kinds of discussions and inquiries by Congress. But it was Kennedy back in 1961. We looked at it last week, how in 1961, President John F. Kennedy said, if we go to the moon, it's going to be expensive, it's going to take a lot of risk, a lot of hard work. Understand, we will do this, not because it is easy, but because it is hard. And it was in January of 1967 we saw how hard it would be and we would be confronted with the question, how do we go forward in the face of such failure? This morning, I want to continue the sermon series, Do the Hard Thing. There's no question that all of us find ourselves in that same kind of place at some time in our life where we have known failure. Where we may have tried so hard, but we've made mistakes. You have the loss of a dream. You have the loss of life. You have those times when you have failed. And where do you go from here? What do we do? It's a hard thing to say we want to still go forward. I said each week what we wanted to do was to look at the people of Israel. That each week I wanted to look at the people of Israel who had been slaves in Egypt and who were finally going to be free in the promised land. In order to move from being slaves to being free people in the promised land, they would be required to do many hard things. 
And the things that I believe that God asks out of them are the very things that I think God asks out of us. You remember the story of where we were. The people had been slaves for 430 years, and God raised up Moses who went to the Pharaoh and said, Let my people go. And Pharaoh said, No. And so it was that in the end, God sent the plagues, and Moses went, and there was one plague and two, and finally nine plagues. And after each plague, the Pharaoh said, No. And so then there was the tenth plague. And the tenth plague was when Moses told the people of Israel, Take a lamb, kill the lamb, take the blood, put it on the doorpost. Because tonight the angel of death will come and wherever there is blood on the doorpost, they will pass over. But all the firstborn throughout Egypt are going to die. It was a horrible night. It's where the Passover comes from that is still celebrated in the Jewish faith today. We still remember the Passover And so it was the next morning with such grief across Egypt, the Pharaoh said, go, go. And so suddenly the people of Israel had to pack quickly. There was not time to figure out how to get things together, how to prepare your meals. They didn't have time to put in the leaven and let the bread rise. They had unleavened bread. They took what little they had and they began to move quickly to try to get out of Egypt. And they got all the way to the Red Sea. And now they were trapped. When suddenly they turned behind and looked up and Pharaoh had changed his mind. They could see a cloud of dust from the horses and the chariots that were now coming after them. Their attempt to escape was a colossal failure. It looked hopeless. And the question became, what do we do now? It was then that God spoke to Moses and said, tell the people to go forward. Once we got through with Apollo 1, we did research for so long to figure out exactly what happened. And once they'd figured out what they thought had happened, of course, there were the congressional inquiries. One of those who was called to testify before Congress was Frank Borman. He was an astronaut. He had been assigned on the task of trying to figure out what had happened. And when he came before Congress, they began to ask the questions. And the first one, of course, was, so why did this happen? Whose fault is it? What do you want us to do? They asked that question, so so why did this happen? Frank Borman said, it was a lack of imagination. None of us could have imagined this would happen. We thought the danger was always being out in space 180 miles from terra firma would have a fire and there was no fire station nearby. We never imagined this would happen on the ground. So we weren't prepared for that. It was a lack of imagination. And whose fault was it? Well, it's North Americans' fault. They built it. It's NASA's fault. They're the management. It's everybody who worked on the project's fault. It's my fault. We just didn't think this could ever happen. And so Congress said, so what do you think we ought to do? Frank Borman said, I think you ought to stop this witch hunt and let us go to the moon. And that's what we decided to do. That was a hard decision. Tell the people to go forward. In a moment when you feel trapped 
and you begin to question all the decisions you made and you see the mistakes and you know you have a failure, tell the people to go forward. I want us to think about that this morning because it is one of the hard things that all of us will be asked to do at some time in our lives. Three things we need to see. First of all, the question was, why did this happen? Why did it happen? For Apollo 1, Frank Borman said, lack of imagination. I look at the people of Israel and I think, you know, that's what happened there too. Who would have imagined after 10 plagues that the Pharaoh would then change his mind again and come after them? They never imagined that. How do you get out of Egypt? No one imagined they'd get trapped against the Red Sea, but nobody knew where they were going. These were slaves, their ancestors for 430 years. Nobody had a map of how to get out of Egypt. They didn't have an iPhone with GPS. No, no, Moses had been out of Egypt to the wilderness and then back. He was the only one. No, there was a failure of imagination and planning and they found themselves trapped. And immediately the people of Israel began to say, Why? Why did you bring us out into the desert to die? When you fail, when you have great struggle and pain in the life, when you wind up making mistakes, it is easy to spend a lifetime of asking, Why? Why did I do that? Why did this happen? Why? took 18 months before we were finally ready to fly. 18 months before we put Apollo back together in a whole new way. All kinds of new designs, all kinds of new wire. They put it back together and 18 months later we were ready to fly and we started with Apollo 7 now. Wally Shara, who was also one of the original seven astronauts, was deemed to be the commander. He had been good friends with Gus Grissom. And before they flew, he was being interviewed and they asked him, how do you feel about Apollo 1? And Wally Shiraz said, Gus knew there were problems. I knew there were problems with the spacecraft. We all knew there were problems. But we're test pilots. And things happen. And when things happen, you're sad. You mourn the loss but you don't wear the black armband forever. When you and I fail, I think it's important to grieve. When bad things happen, it's okay to be sad. But if you wear the black armband forever, you never hear God say, go forward. You get stuck. So secondly, whose fault is it? Frank Borman said, it's North American, it's NASA, anyone who worked, it's my fault. Isn't it interesting how we always want to lay blame whenever we fail? We always want to lay blame when things have gone bad, when we've made, we always want to figure out who's to blame. Again, the people of Israel, they immediately said in our scripture lesson, Moses we told you we wanted to stay slaves. Can you believe that? We said last week, you know, sometimes it's easier to stay enslaved in what you know 
than it is to be free and go into the unknown. The slaves said, Moses, we told you we'd rather stay slaves. It's your fault. This is your fault that we're out here and about to die. If you spend all your time laying blame, you never can hear God say, go forward. What are the opportunities before you? Those are the things we're never able to think about. What are the opportunities before you that you can't even see? You know, I saw recently where Truett Cathy died, founder of Chick-fil-A. It made me think about another one, Dave Thomas. Dave Thomas, who was the founder of Wendy's. And you all remember him. Yeah, I mean, it was said, he's been dead 13 years now, that's hard to believe. But it was said that he did over 800 commercials and there was a time when 90% of America could recognize Dave Thomas's face. I mean, he really was an amazing guy. It turned out that when Dave Thomas was born, his mom, his mom was single. She was very young, very poor. And immediately she had made the decision, it would be the best thing for my child if I put him up for adoption. And so as a baby, he was adopted by the Thomases who loved him very much. But tragedy stuck when he was only five years old. His adopted mother died. And now it's just he and his dad. His father worked construction, was always moving. They were poor. But his father worked hard, kept a roof over the head, and kept food on the table. Every summer he went to go live with his mom, his grandmother. It was his mother's mother. And she was a wonderful woman who loved him, but who was also poor and said, Dave, you've got to learn we work hard. You've got to do your best. Live with integrity. We do hard. You don't cut the corners. Do you understand? Don't cut the corners. Do it right. So years later, when he opened a hamburger restaurant, he decided he would serve hamburgers that were square as a way to acknowledge what his grandmother had taught him. You don't cut the corners. Do it right. Well, it turned out that when he was 15 years old, he got to working in a restaurant. And the man who owned it was just became kind of a mentor, really did like him. And, and he loved this guy. And so what happened was he noticed this guy had come to work every day in a three-piece suit. But he mopped the floors and he wiped the tables and he served the meals. I mean, he did it all and he worked so hard. And Dave said, I know how to do this. I want to do this. And so when his father, grand, yeah, his father got through with the job and said, it's time to move on, Dave Thomas said, no, I'm staying here. Fifteen years old, he dropped out of high school, started working in a restaurant. He learned a lot from the man. And when he got old enough, he went into the army. And there he got into food service. And he learned so much about food service in the army. And when he finally got out, Kentucky Fried Chicken was kind of on a downhill run. It was really losing ground. And they said to him, we have several franchise stores that are about to close. They're going to go bankrupt. We'll let you run them. And if you can turn them around, we'll give you 40% ownership. And so Dave Thomas took them over. And his first idea was, why don't we tell everybody we're going to sell chicken in a bucket? And his idea caught on real quick. And he worked hard on service and quality and good food. You don't cut the corners. And in seven years, they were turning this huge profit. And Dave Thomas had stock options worth several million dollars, a young man. And that's when he made the decision to leave Kentucky Fried Chicken and open up his own hamburger restaurant. And he decided to go do it and name it after his oldest daughter, 
Melinda Lou. You see, now, Melinda Lou had a younger brother, and his younger brother couldn't pronounce the name Melinda. All he could get out was Winda. And so everybody had always called her Wendy. And so they named the restaurant after his oldest daughter, Melinda Lou, that went by Wendy. And when he opened them up, he said, I hope to have at least five stores, one for myself and one for each of my four children, so everybody can make a good living. In seven years, he had over a 1,000 stores worth more than $50 million. He was an incredible financial success, but he was also such a good human being. He was so supportive of foster care and foster homes and adoptions. He said every child needs to have a family, to have a home. He worked tirelessly for that. When Dave turned 61 years old, he thought, you know, I really need to get my high school degree. And so it was he hired a tutor so he could pass the GED. He was living in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and Coconut Grove High School decided to adopt Dave Thomas as a part of their senior class. And sure enough with the tutor, he managed to pass and get his GED. And that year he graduated. The senior class voted Dave Thomas and his wife king and queen of the prom. And the senior class voted Dave Thomas most likely to succeed. The tragedy was he developed cancer. He gave so much to cancer research, and he developed cancer, liver cancer, and Dave Thomas died at only 69 years old. Before he died, though, I I saw this interview that I've never forgotten. He was so inspiring as he talked about his life and all the good he was doing. But Dave talked about it, and he said, You know, it was out of adversity that I got the opportunity to make it. It was out of adversity that I got the opportunity to make it. It is hard to see the opportunity that comes out of adversity if you're spending all your time trying to figure out who's to blame. If you're spending all your time asking why, you don't hear God say, go forward. Which is the third thing. They ask, what do you think we ought to do? Yes, we've had a horrible tragedy. Three men have died. Stop the winch hunt and let us go to the moon. We decided to do the hard thing. What an amazing thing when we went to the moon. The answer was, for the people of Israel, tell them to go forward. You know, the thing they never would have expected was that God would part the Red Sea. They thought a lot of things God might do. That wasn't one of them. We are trapped. Here comes the Pharaoh. We're stuck between Pharaoh and the Red Sea. We have no hope. You know, that is the great danger when you and I feel like we've failed, when we've made mistakes, when a dream has died, you lose a sense of hope. But we're the people of faith, and as people of faith, we're the ones who believe It is God who moves in our lives. You know, this story, you think about it, this story has been told for almost 3,500 years. How many stories get told over and over again for 3,500 years? The reason this story gets told over and over, it is such foundational to the faith because it says God acts in history. God acts in our history. 
God does those very things we never imagined that could happen. God's going to part the Red Sea? That's how we're going to get away from the Pharaoh? Never could have imagined it. And God was willing to help them go forward, but they had to take the step, tell the people to go forward. You know, one of those who was so distraught when Apollo 1 fire happened was Deke Slayton. Deke Slate was one of the original seven astronauts. He had hoped to be the first man in space instead of Alan Shepard. And Deke had become a part of the astronaut corps and then was doing training within the next year or two and on the centrifuge going round and round and round pulling G's when they noticed something happening with his heart. And they began doing research and they discovered that he now and then would have a heart murmur, kind of a, uh, an extra heartbeat. Well, lots of physicians looked at him and they said, we think it's going to be fine. It's not going to hurt you to fly. But the higher up brass thinking, you know, if we send him out of space, we don't know what's going to happen. And if something bad happens and he dies, boy, then we're going to look bad. You're grounded. So Deke Slayton was taken off flight status. Killed him. His great dream in life was to fly in space. Now that was never going to happen. He became director of astronaut operations. So instead he began helping to choose the flight crews and the rotation, working with the astronauts and management. He became very significant in the space program and, and with all the different astronauts. He had seen them through Mercury, he had seen them through Gemini, and then it came to Apollo 1. He had helped to choose that crew, Gus Grissom, his close friend, to be the commander. And now they were all dead. He was there at the Cape the day when they died, talking to Gus on the phone when they hollered fire. He immediately got on a plane to go to Houston to go see Betty and Martha and Pat, three women who had suddenly become widows. Their life turned upside down in less than 60 seconds. When he got there, he received word that the three women, these three wives, wanted to see him. And they were all at Martha Chaffee's home. And when he got to the house and came in, he was so overcome with emotion. But it was Martha who came over and handed him a little box and said, this is something we wanted to give you. The reason we asked you here today was we wanted to give this to you. And Deke opened it up and it turned out it was a gold astronaut's pin. Whenever you were named as an astronaut, you were given a pin that looked like a, a comet streaking across the sky and it had a star in it and, and it was silver. And then whenever you flew in space, they changed it to gold. You're a real astronaut. Well, he opened this up and it was a gold astronaut pin, but instead of having a star, it had a diamond to make it just a moment different. And it was Martha who said, you need to understand the guys were going to take this and fly it into space because they knew that you would never get there. So they wanted to fly this into space and when they came home, they wanted to give it to you because they wanted to tell you that they believed you were just as much an astronaut as they were. That's how they felt about you. And obviously it's never going to go to space now, but we wanted you to know how they felt. And Deke Slayton said, to, for those women in the midst of their incredible grief, to do this for me, it just overwhelmed him. He lost it. 
He continued to wear the pin with great pride, continued to do astronaut operations on through Apollo 1, all the way up to the landing on the moon. And then when it got to Apollo 13, Deke got sick with a cold, just couldn't get better. He struggled and struggled, couldn't get better, so he went to the flight surgeon, Dr. Chuck Berry, who happens to be a very good friend of mine from Houston. He went to Dr. Chuck Berry and said, I'm not getting any better, what do you suggest? And so he put him on this regimen of all kinds of over-the-top vitamins, and he started taking them, and sure enough, he soon felt better. But a strange thing happened. He didn't feel the heart murmur. And so he started having tests and putting on monitors and recording them, and sure enough, the heart murmur had gone away. And he went back to Chuck and said, what do you think I should do? And he said, keep taking the vitamins. And so Deke did. He kept taking them for the next year, and they kept running tests, and there seemed to be no more heart problem. And so he began seeing Chuck, and Chuck had to start fighting the, the hierarchy, and it took a long time, but test after test after test, and they finally decided he could be returned to flight status. And suddenly they said, Deke, you can go fly in space. The problem? Apollo was ending. Congress had cut the program and now they were cutting back the amount of flights. Apollo 17 would be the last flight to the moon, and all the crews had already been named. Named a flight status and didn't have a flight. Except there was one last Saturn rocket that had already been made, and now they had nothing to do with it. And NASA came up with the idea, what if we went to the Russians and said, Let's work together and create a capsule that can dock in outer space so we could really help to rescue each other when there's a, a, a sky lab or a, a space station out in outer space. We could show the world that the Russians and Americans could work together. It could be the Apollo-Soyuz program. And both countries bought off on it. And so now suddenly they were going to be working on trying to create an Apollo-Soyuz program and they happened to name a good Oklahoman, Tom Stafford, as commander of that program. And then they named Brant's Van, Vance Brandt also on it and Deke Slayton. Suddenly he was named to be a flight crew to go into outer space to be a part of the Apollo Suez program. It was in July of 1975, 16 years after being named an astronaut. At the age of 51 years old, older than any astronaut at that time who had ever flown, the Deke Slayton climbed into that Apollo capsule and finally heard that rocket rumble and to lift off and soon go streaking across the sky. Everyone knew he'd never fly. When he got back, he was being interviewed. And they said, what would you want to tell the youth of America? And he simply said, tell them never to lose hope. When you and I have failed, made mistakes, confronted with tragedy, it is easy to lose hope. But we're the people of faith who know that a cross is not the final word. No one would ever have expected a stone rolled away in an empty tomb. 
God does the things you never expect. But if you spend your time asking why, or trying to lay blame, you may miss the opportunity that comes from adversity. Tell the people to go forward. It is the hard thing to do. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.